Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hi, everybody. I'm Kiko Bourne, and this is Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in D.C. This show highlights how people in D.C. and across the country are changing the food system. I believe food is worth more of our money, time, and energy than most of us devote to it in our day-to-day. Did you know Americans spend 6% of their household income on food? That's less than any other country in the world. And I have cited that fact before, and I did a little fact-checking before this episode, so I have adjusted from that 11% quote I said earlier. The USDA says that it's 6% of our household income. It's unbelievable that that's the absolute lowest of any country. So with this show, I try to elevate the value of food by introducing you to people and parts of the food system that don't often get covered in the news. And speaking of the underappreciated parts of the food system, for many months I've been thinking about the series we kick off today, which I'm calling Food Admin. I'm going to try and illuminate a handful of the roles that are often overlooked or undervalued in our food system, but without which food organizations like restaurants, farms, and food banks wouldn't be able to do what they do. So today, We'll start with dollars and cents. I have Matt Hetrick, a restaurant accountant and CFO, here with me in the studio, and I'm excited for him to school me on the fundamental ways accountants help make food businesses sustainable. I've always dreamed of having my own cafe business, so if I'm lucky, Matt will even share a few tips for future business owners, as well as, of course, those in the throes of keeping their heads above water. And later in this series, we'll look at the role of HR in food organizations, the work of food administrative assistants, and finally, food marketing, all of which are less discussed than the chef, server, or even farmer. But before we meet Matt and dive into food accounting, a little Kiko's food news for today. Headline one. Female winemakers are leading the growing natural wine movement, which focuses on sustainable grape growing practices and minimal intervention after harvest, meaning no chemicals or sulfates. In the past, women probably veered away from winemaking in part because of the physicality required. But women outnumber men as the leading consumer of wine in both retail and restaurants, consuming 50% of bottles in the U.S. So I think it's cool to see women taking over this particular niche of the hospitality industry. And it's been evident right here in the full-service radio studio. You may have tuned in when Marissa Ross, Bon Bon Appetit Magazine's wine editor, came on Pineapple Radio to weigh in on this movement that she's clearly front and center of. So stay tuned for that trend. Headline two. Everyone was talking last month about Beyonce's performance at Coachella, but did you hear about the big announcement she made ahead of the show? She's gone vegan and has collaborated with her trainer on a new vegan meal planner app so that others can eat like her. 
Meals are recommended based on a user's individual preferences and habits and may soon integrate with Amazon Fresh to produce a shopping list and place an order seamlessly. By creating an app, Yancey is making a statement that healthy eating and expert guidance, quote, shouldn't be reserved for a select few, but is a right for all. So it's, I was just talking with Matt, our guest, about the way that pop culture can make or break a food trend. It's going to be interesting to see the effect of this, um, this innovation on the vegan, um, the vegan industry, if it's an industry, maybe the vegan movement. I, I have to say, I didn't love the way she announced it on her Instagram account. She said, 44 days until Coachella, vegan time. Because to me, veganism is not a weight loss technique. It's more of a way to preserve the environment or minimize, mitigate the suffering of animals. Anyways, it can be different things to different people. And I'll be staying tuned for more on that. Finally, third headline for Kiko's Food News Today. The world's protein shortage is convincing venture capitalists that there's money to be made in aquaculture, the ancient art of rearing aquatic animals and plants for food. Today, aquaculture supplies half of all fish for human consumption, which is up 20%, from 26% in 94. And investors have taken notice. Since 2013, the number of venture-backed deals in aquaculture-related companies shot up basically from zero to nine last year. The biggest investments are focused on using technology to improve aquaculture techniques. So that's what we have for Kiko's Food News today. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I will look forward to chatting with Matt Hetrick about food accounting. Stay tuned. Music today, courtesy of Keto, that's K-I-E-D-O, on SoundCloud. We will be right back with Lunch Agenda. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda. I'm your host, Kiko Born. And my job is to bring undercovered parts of the food system straight to you every week and provide you with specific ways you can become a food activist in your day-to-day life. We're kicking off our food admin series today with the yin to my yang, the left brain thinker to my right brain feeler. I'm talking about the numbers guy among us food people. So I want to give a big welcome to Matt Hetrick, a culinary accountant. Thanks, Kiko. Thanks for joining me, Matt. So let me introduce you formally. Matt Hetrick was named one of the top 40 under 40 CPAs in the United States last year. Matt is the founder of Culinary Accountants and is CFO to many of the best restaurants in Washington, D.C. and beyond. A combat infantry veteran of the Iraq War, he's no stranger to high-stress environments like those in the busy restaurants he works with. Matt brings over a decade of restaurant-specific financial expertise, including insights gleaned from his own restaurants, Preserve in Annapolis, Maryland, and Vintage in Frederick, Maryland, to bear in providing financial support and guidance to restaurateurs. So Matt, were you an accountant first and then a food guy, or the reverse? Were you into food, you know, maybe worked in food, and then realized that accounting would be a good niche for you? I think that's a great question. Um, in the sense that we all start as food people. And I think that's an easy thing to forget. 
um, if you're in the industry, well right? Said. Like we, or if you're just a, a human who's interested in the, the food supply network and, and what these systems are, you know, the very first thing you do when you come out is is to have your first meal, right? And then sometimes along the way, you're trained to not care about where that comes from. Um, for me, my dad was an accountant, so I grew up in accounting. I sort of uh, stepped aside to do uh, to serve as a soldier, and then came back in accounting as probably some of the people who could have turned this off already because it's an accountant that you're interviewing. Uh, it's like a really, really, really boring job to a lot of people, right? It's the it's the trope in every movie. Like when you see a character, it's like office space, <laughs> yeah. they're all accountants. You have some like depressed character. You know, it's uh, Will Ferrell in that uh, Stranger Than Fiction movie. It's like, oh, this person is an IRS agent or an accountant, and it's really awful. So it's also intimidating. I. I tried to take an accounting class in college and walked out. It just felt like another language. <laughs> it is a different language. Yeah. Um, but it's an important language to me. So when I came back and had to go back to being an accountant from being in, in, the, um, in the Army, uh, a big piece of that was how am I going to do this in a way that was going to be meaningful. And I happened to work with restaurants. I had been a caterer as a kid in college and sort of like everybody works in the food industry at yeah. certain ages. Um, and found myself drawn back to that that world. Mm-hmm. And are there a lot of you hiding out there? Or, like, how common is it to have a practice that serves many restaurants like yours? You know, Matt, for the listener, you know his his business serves Roses, Luxury, Ancho, Bad Saint, Glen's Garden Market, the Coffee Bar. You know, the top tier of beloved food businesses in DC. Um, is it is your business model common or? Do most food businesses have someone on their staff who does the accounting? Uh, it's an extremely uncommon niche. Um, and we actually got into it and I built this company around the need to put that niche together or to, to serve it. Um, most accountants don't like it because restaurants operate on really tight budgets and they can't pay the kind of money that accountants and lawyers want to charge. Right. Um, and need to charge for their expertise. I get, I get that part of it. Um, so... When I was working with restaurants, uh, I was looking for how I could do that profitably, but um, sustainably. That's that's a big piece of um, both our staffing model and how we work with uh, with restaurants. You know, we want yeah. to work with people for ten years, not three. Or and two. I think it's a, a key insight that you share in terms of restaurants have such tight margins that they don't often want to pay for accounting. That's going to be a theme that we're exploring across this food admin series restaurants also don't often want to pay for hr restaurants often don't want to pay for um marketing so so you know the goal here is to learn about what you do that adds so much value so let's talk about that what do you do for your clients sure and um realistically what it is is all in the art of compromise and that that goes across all of these admin side things but also in the menus that you're presented and the service that you're given because if anybody could do their ideal dream restaurant, it would always be perfectly staffed. It would have the best food that they knew how to make on there, and it would cost whatever was fair to you, right? And they would have all of the support staff that they wanted. But nobody really can, right? So you start to make compromises the minute that you dream about your restaurant, right? Because you start to look, hey, where am I going to put this? And when you look for where you're going to put the restaurant, it never actually matches exactly what you have in your head. So you start to compromise on that piece of the vision. And you say, hey, listen, I want to put together um, the best menu of the best food I've ever made, right, I could, that I could possibly do. And I promise you that even on tasting menus, like the best tasting menus in any city, no. that's not the best food those chefs can do. That's not even close to the best food that they can do. But their challenge isn't 
to give you exactly the best food. It's to to compromise between, um, or to, to find that fine compromise between like here's the best food I can afford to create for you, and still pay my staff and still pay a whole bunch of bills, and um, give you my dream and my vision within some constraints. Can so, you tell us a story of one client that you've guided through that kind of change um, to, you know, use your word compromise that has positively affected their bottom line? Sure. Um, in fact, I'll tell you the story of one of my own restaurants because that doesn't throw anybody else's dirty uh, <laughs> underwear out there. But um, in vintage, and this is, we sort of have a blog that's designed to start conveying some messages to um, up and coming restaurateurs and restaurants that we work with. And I have a saying that I've sort of come up with recently, which is, or like a story to teach them. It's like, run the restaurant that you have, not the one that you want, right? And so at Vintage, um, which is a Southern comfort food restaurant up near Frederick, um, we have this great staff. And to me, the people are, are the most important part. And that's just a, a prioritization that I um, sort of make within the way that I approach the business, um, whether it's for a client or for myself, um, but that's the thing that's most important. And then how do you support those people, whether they're working for you or they're depending on those paychecks, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So at Vintage, we started off like a lot of places, we uh, made our own french fries. And that seems like a a little thing, right? But in in a lot of places, it sounds like a really good thing. But to make french fries, uh, if you've never done it at home before, it's a a multi-step process. First, you have to cut all the fries, right? Then you have to blanch them. Then you have to dry them. Then you have to put them somewhere. You have to store them. You have to then cook them again, right? You have to do all this stuff, and you have to hope that along that process, the supplier of the potatoes didn't give you um, potatoes that have more sugar and more starch that come out. Like sometimes you get brown potatoes. Uh, like french fries and you're like what what do they do they burnt these it's actually just the amount of residual sugar in them maybe these have been stored for longer than a new mm-hmm. new potato crop whatever mm-hmm. it is right well you have these quality control issues and all of that kind of stuff but that's not the problem the problem is, that i have to deal with as a, a restaurant tour is that if i have four steps to make these french fries in my in my restaurant mm-hmm. i have to really think through like hey is this a differentiating product for Mm. me? Because it costs a lot of labor Mm -hmm. to cut up fries and then to blanch them. And there's energy that goes into it. So when you talk about like um, the food system in general and like whether or not sourcing is done properly, one of the things that we should think about is not necessarily just, in my opinion, is not necessarily just the, the surface of it. But like what about the other inputs that go into it? Not just the human inputs, but say you have a factory in Idaho and you you know, throw these potatoes into a gigantic chopper and boil them really quickly and all that stuff. And you don't have waste along the way as they get trucked across the country, whatever it is. If at the end of the day, you're running a restaurant and you're taking the same potatoes that you truck the same distance. And the only difference is that you cut them by hand and, you know, did whatever it is. Are you making the best potato in the world? Are people coming to your restaurant to do that? Yeah. And if the answer is like, hey, I'm not going here because it's Thrasher's French fries on the Ocean City Boardwalk, and it's just like, this is a restaurant that's doing French fries, uh, a restaurant can ask itself fairly, like the question of, is this an area where I can compromise, right? Right. Could I source my, and, and here's how you would do that, maybe I don't want to spend $10 an hour and making these French fries cost way more than they should on labor, maybe I want to spend that same money buying uh, my beef from a local farm yeah. because I know that it's not in a feedlot in uh, you know, Kansas or something. Yep. Or um, you know, at Vintage, we, we bought our eggs for a long time and still do when they're in season or like depending on the availability from like local backyard farmers even. And like that's, 
to, to us a better choice than saying, hey, look, I can make the French fries in-house that are probably not as good. Right. Um, for us as accountants or for me as CFO to a lot of places, my job is to help people navigate, to identify inside of their numbers stories that they start the stories that the numbers are saying yep. um, to them to, to hear that because it is a different language, right? Most people in this business um, are the opposite side of the brain from me. And so we're like applying our knowledge together. Mm-hmm. I'm interpreting, I'm reading a story to them yep. and telling them what it says to me. They're then turning around and saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. I can't make that compromise. I'm not willing to, right? or I don't want to, or right. blah, blah, blah. But since you're looking at different solutions for a problem that the the story, the story may tell you, um, maybe then they say, but I know how to do this. I'm not, I love my French fries. My French fries are the best ever, but I'm going to stop making house-made ketchup right. because that's kind of ridiculous right. and Heinz is good. Whatever it happens to yeah, be. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I, I see what you're saying. Um, I'm going to ask you for any specific numbers that you use with clients um, in terms of kind of key benchmarks. So... You know, is there a target food cost as a percentage of revenue that you always guide clients to or a target cost of labor or a target cost of rent? Um, Are those numbers that are kind of industry best practice norms or is it different based on the type of business that you're working with? Um, So the answer to that is yes and yes. Um, The great thing about it is when you have the breadth of knowledge that I do and see all these different places, um, you can take industry norms that are pretty wide and narrow them down to what they really should be and then apply them to each individual story, right? Because um, Bad Saint, who I worked, who I work with, is different from um, the coffee bar, which I also work with. You know, Mm -hmm. they're two different kinds of things, but they're both food businesses. Now, if you were like to Google what the KPI should be, what should your food costs be? They're totally different. And KPI being key performance indicator, right? You got it. So, um, yeah, so we have benchmarks that we're looking for for things. And then we're, we're translating those benchmarks into, you know, what this individual restaurant is trying to do with its individual menu. Mm-hmm. Again, um, you know, if you're a lower priced place, you might have value priced food because you're selling a lot of drinks if you're a bar, uh, which is why anybody that wants a good deal on food can, can look in like high volume bars because maybe they have an obligation to move food to keep their license or oh, something that's like interesting. that. Cool. Um, and then simultaneously, like tasting menus tend to have a lot more um, human inputs and the food portions of a lot of um, tasting menus are, are a proportion, like a really small piece of the actual cost. It's, mm-hmm. it's the talent that goes into translating those ingredients. But in terms of, you know, numbers that you would stake into the ground, are sure. there any that you will share with me? Oh, of course. Um, prime costs in any full service restaurant need to be below 65%. And, and what are prime costs? Prime costs are your cost of goods sold, which um, you typically break down if you're doing it the right way into food, liquor, beer, and wine as component pieces. Uh, and you have individual targets for those. And then your labor. And the labor is a big area of compromise too and difficulty because um, especially in markets like here where um, laws are being made by people that are sort of outside of the industry to, to constrain the industry, which is fine. Um, you continually adapt to those things. Um, you break that into the front of house labor, the back of house labor, both of those in hourly components. Mm-hmm. So you're people who aren't salaried employees and then your management and right. those are your salaried employees. So tell me a little bit more about your kind of sugar coated statement about those who are not in the industry making laws about labor. What's going on right now for people who aren't following as closely? Sure. There's going to be a, um, there's a voting 
proposition coming up in a primary, um, and I didn't intend to go down the, the question of this. Nobody that I work with has the same opinions. Most of us tend to believe um, that a, living wa- a fair living wage is really important, um, and I think you can see those compromises in some of the laws that were passed in the last few years. Like everybody, I don't know anybody in the industry who feels like the back of house is fairly compensated. I don't know anybody in the industry who is like really angry or upset about the move to $15 an hour as an overall base wage. I think a lot of us feel like that's still not there enough in this city. Um, but then there are activist groups that are um, leading a charge to change the sort of tip structure. Um, and that, that comes down to like a, just a basic conflict of belief between a set of, a set of groups here. One group believes uh, Rock, which is the Restaurant Opportunity Center, they believe that tipping as a practice is fundamentally um, fundamentally racist and sexist, and it encourages a lot of practices that, as a society, I think a lot of us agree that we don't want to encourage. Mm-hmm. And they just believe that as a core. Some of the people there, at least, believe that as a core piece of of their like life view that that's that's what this does, and right. that they have to fight against it. Um, and then some of the people on the business side of things are saying, "Hey, listen, like we have really highly compensated employees." Nobody makes less than $15 an hour. That's how the tip minimum wage works. Um, So there's no such thing as a tip minimum wage. It's just whether or not the federal government pays you to to allow people to take tips to it. It's a a slightly complicated thing because on one side, it's like, hey, do you want to pay people $3 an hour? Is that fair? And nobody would say yes to that. Um, And the other side is saying, well, it's more complicated, but we don't necessarily live in a world that deals with nuance very well have you (laughs) have you recommended to any of your clients that are restaurants to go the non-tip higher wage route i think that's i think that's generally understood to be the avenue that will have to be um pursued if if this is passed because the only way to take the same pool of money and you know sort of survive is to say okay well if we can't take tips and we're paying not three dollars an hour plus your tips and most people on in I see a lot of payrolls um, in restaurants from sort of low-end bars and coffee shops all the way up to very high-end stuff. Um, on average in this city, your your tips are bringing you to the mid-20s or low-30s an hour for generally part-time work. That's not everybody in the industry, and nobody would argue that it is, but mm-hmm. it is like a very widespread uh, experience, which is why so many people choose to serve or so many people choose to be bartenders or runners or whatever else. Um, I think the industry understands that if you move to a full $15 an hour and no tips, that um, tipping is going to go away like it did in other cities where they did this. In other countries. In other countries. And you go to a service charge. Right. My opposition to it is then you're taking away the control. Uh, my fundamental op- to, uh, opposition to it is that right now all of those tips belong to those employees. When you change it to a service charge, it belongs to the restaurant and the restaurant can divvy it up how it wants to. There are restaurateurs who are excited about that because they'll be able to pay their kitchens more. Right. To me, I know I don't work with any of them, but I have worked with and then quit working with unscrupulous operators before or seen the books of unscrupulous operators. Right. It's hard to um, regulate that it's, those tips are being distributed amongst those who earned them. It's really hard. Yep. And there are people that steal from their employees. Right. And I think that's wrong and I don't do business that way, but... I've seen it done. Yeah. I see, I've seen people pay people under the table and I think yeah. it's wrong. So I'm going to shift us to a more positive yeah, note. I, I know that many of the businesses that you work with are really mission driven and, and you know, 
they want to source all local or organic and they want to pay their servers you know they want their servers to come home with minimum wage plus tips let's say and they want to compost and they want to you know operate according to other best practices that are more expensive which of all of those attributes do you tend to you know how do you help them navigate through those and which are the most expensive of those attributes and how do you, you know, help your clients choose which to stake themselves to? So I think that each of those decisions comes down to an individual restaurant and what they're going to base themselves around. Yeah. I think that there are restaurant groups and restaurants and restaurant tours that, um, focus more on the human capital in there and the human element of their restaurants. And that allows them not to make compromise. A, a lot of it tends in practice that some of the people who do that have the larger budgets to spend on things like proper sourcing and stuff of mm-hmm. that nature, which I think is great. Um, but they're able to say, Hey, listen, what's most important to me is that we provide health insurance and we pay our people properly and we give them, you know, uh, paid time off and stuff like that. Right. And I think that's a really great approach to it. Um, there's other people who say, you know, it's not as important to me. Um, how much our employees are making per hour, but it's really important to me that I can name the farmer that grew this tomato, right? right? And so depending on who you are inside of that spectrum and what's the most important thing to you, I think that is where I come in to help them make those decisions. Like one of the great things about it is sometimes you don't have to make, it it is an art of compromise to run a proper business, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to make bad compromises if you have the right information, right? So you might be able to say, hey, I can afford to do this and this if I think about it in a different way, but you're not going to get there unless you have somebody else who's thinking differently, right? So you and I could address some problem and I bet you we'd come up with a better solution together than alone. That's the great thing about what we do is most restaurateurs in the small groups like we work with don't have access to a CFO. They don't have access to this information. And the bigger groups that do have access to it don't necessarily employ it in a way that I would like them to, Hmm. which is why I don't work with a lot of big groups. Okay. Um, And and I mean that in terms of like their compromises are that they compromise their people and their product, Hmm. in my opinion. Hmm. You know, that's... That's a different thing. I don't work with a lot of people like that. It's yeah. mostly these small groups. Yeah. Um, but you give them, like I do, like a, a really um, great access to information that they otherwise wouldn't have. Right? They're not. They're not a group with a hundred restaurants. They don't know what's happening. I happen to know what's happening in the city. I know exactly what's happening in trends and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so they get access to that, but we're charging them uh, a very low price because of our model and everything else. And. That's on purpose because I never wanted to be a lawyer. I never wanted to charge people 500 bucks an hour, you know, and so like sending me an email would cost you 50 bucks. I think that's not fair. Right. And I understand why people do charge that for their expertise, but I wanted to have a longer term relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I I saw on your site that you like to work by retainer. Absolutely. Um, So let's go back to this idea of me as an aspiring food business owner. Okay. And let's talk about financing a food business. Sure. So there are various investment structures out there and I'm curious which ones you recommend to, to clients, um, in general or how you've seen investment structures go well. Well, I think every, every type of business that you raise money for has a different structure based on a lot of the particulars of it, but let's use like a hypothetical restaurant. Probably if you were listening to this and you were like, Hey, I really want to do my next restaurant. How am I going to, my first restaurant, how am I going to do, how am I going to do, um, the raise, right? 
the most common structure for that is to do a limited liability company. You know, it's a very simple structure. You get an operating agreement that tells people what kind of uh, members they're going to be. Members are like partners in it. You treat it like a partnership uh, for tax purposes. And then you split it up. And usually a, a first-time restaurateur is going to do something, generally speaking, out along the lines of like, I'm going to retain 70% of my company. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to sell off 30%. Mm-hmm. Right? And that 30% is going to be broken into pieces that are some predetermined value. Right? If I have a million-dollar project and I'm selling off 30 shares of it, I'm probably selling them for 33 grand a piece. Right? Um, whatever I'm going to do. But I've got to make sure to treat you fairly if I expect you to invest in me. Right? So usually the structure is, hey, I'm going to give you 70% of the money and I'm going to take 30 in a, in a low but fair salary until you get paid back, then it flips to whatever we own. Or like, I'm going to pay you all the way back plus 50% or I'm going to double your money and then it flips, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you can cut, you can sort of like divide that pie however you want to. It could be 60, 40, 80, 20. It doesn't really matter. Right. At the end of the day, one of the things people forget a little bit when they get into it is while there are plenty of people who are born rich in this world, um, and that's great for them. There's a lot more people who work really hard for what they have. And for whatever reason, if you have their interest and they want to invest in you, it's usually not just to lose their money. So you have to like respect the fact that like everybody's cash is like blood, sweat, and tears and a piece of their life, right? You can always point to like the Donald Trumps of the world and be like, well, he was handed, like whatever, right? I gotcha. But for Joe Schmo, who worked really hard to save $25,000, that might have been a, a half year of their life, right. you know? And you're going to take a half year of their life. You need to respect that and you need to pay them back for that and treat it with the same respect you would treat to your own half, um, half year of your life. If you do that as a restaurateur or any business and you really like give that kind of value to it, um, I think you're much more likely to be successful in your raise. You're much more likely to be able to raise more money in the future and you're much more likely to have success. Because if you can see that, you probably can see all the other things that you need to do properly. Hmm. Hmm. But a lot of people forget it, too. And know? how long does a restaurant usually take to become profitable? Um, you know, it depends. Who Again, it depends who it is. Did you get um, Did you get written up by the Post with, like, three or four stars within, you know, a month or two? Are you a celebrity chef because you want a TV thing? Whatever it happens to be. Do you already have existing things? Do you have all this desire but when would you tell a restaurant that you know it's never going to work if like how long how long will will you allow a restaurant client to operate without being profitable before you know there's something that in in inherently wrong right if you um a good way to answer that is if you're raising to do a restaurant you need to have 12 to 18 months of cash that you can burn through at a reasonable rate like let's say you were planning a restaurant and you thought it was going to be $100,000 $100,000 a month in your cafe. You should be working with someone like me to help you do it the right way, right? Because what you don't know can easily make allow you to make the wrong decisions. But um, you should be taking a set of projections and saying, what if I only do 70? What if I miss? I call it like the rule of three. So if you miss by 30% or it takes you 30% longer, three months longer, you know, it costs you three times as much, whatever. What happens? Mm. So if you miss by 30%, you can figure out how much you'll lose each month right. Right, from your from your hope. Figure that you need to be able to do that for 12 to 18 months to get yourself a fair run. And you shouldn't start before you're ready with that capital to, Absolutely not. to, to, to not make your hope 
I mean, otherwise, a lot of people that do that um, cause themselves a lot of heartache, a lot of financial stress for right. no reason. Right. Um, or they fail. Right. You could you can run like a lot of people do on profitable restaurants, and you can run them for a really long time, as long as you you and you wouldn't have to quit unless you didn't see progress. Right. right. If you can't make any adjustments and you can't see any progress, that's when you say, hey, you know, what's what's my alternative here? How do I get out of this? It's not working. Right. It's not always the people's fault either. Sometimes they get a bad landlord or a bad project or whatever. That happens a lot, actually. So for the listeners, this is Kiko. We are listening to Lunch Agenda, and I'm here talking with Matt Hetrick, the founder of Culinary Accountants, which is, in my opinion, one of the less explored parts of the food system is the the dollars and cents side. And I want to take the last moment I have before hearing your action item, Matt, (laughs) to run an idea by you and hear if you think it it holds water in this market or not. So a a good friend who's worked in New York food for for many years on the distribution side and with restaurants has told me about kind of a mafia of New York City accountants um, (laughs) whose job, as she puts it, is to help restaurants delay or avoid payment to their vendors. And she says it it may be New York City specific, but... um, you know, she thinks that restaurants certainly develop reputations for dodging outstanding bills to suppliers. Some of them, you know, the accountants would avoid payment to loosen up cash flow. Does this sound familiar? Is there a dark side of food accounting where it's about avoiding payment and, you know, just, um, you know, getting, getting the restaurant through without treating the vendors with respect? I think... That is not actually the case, but I think that it could come across that way as a as a purveyor hmm. on some in some situations. For any for any operator and for any accountant that's paying for the operators, it's a lot easier just to pay the bills and move on with life. It, you may or may not make more money if you don't pay things, but it's a huge hassle not right, to. Right, right, that makes sense. So I think what happens? Who wants to deal with more billing oh emails and, than necessary? And for for what it's worth, dealing with like New York distributors, the ones that come down here, oh my God, they're 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 rough in their AR departments, and maybe this is why and I now understand it. Um, but it's 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 very stressful. Our staff uh, take a big hit from you know if a restaurant is having cash flow troubles and we can't pay every bill quite like exactly on time. Right. Um, you have to juggle those things because a lot of times our, our marching orders are take care of your small vendors, like take care of those farmers first mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then the big guy and so on and so forth. Uh, but the big guys also have your personal guarantees and they can cut you off and put you out of business. So right. you're always juggling it. I would say that anybody would rather pay than deal with that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, she made the point that in New York there are so many distributors that there's almost... There's always another one the restaurant can go to oh, yeah. if they're not, you know, fulfilling their commitment to the one that they were using before. And that kind of sets the table for um, this malpractice. Ultimately. I, I would I would agree that, you know, there's a lot of people and and there's I bet you a, a lot of middle ground that could be met if people didn't if people didn't have that bad taste in their mouth. You know, if, if that one guy uh, over here with this restaurant didn't screw a whole bunch of distributors, those distributors might be able to work with this guy over here who is just having a little bit of cash flow trouble and has a business that's growing. But because like people are guided by their experiences, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, back and forth, a little bit of head bashing there. Yeah. We tend to be in the middle, which is really unfortunate because it's not a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, but I, that's I don't know. Why you, that's why you uh, served in battle so that yeah. you could withstand those. It's like, hey, listen, all this stuff is nothing. Those tense moments. Yeah. So 
I would like to use the last moment we have to hear your action item. What's one thing that you, you know, whether it has to do with food, business, or whether it has to do with just being a human and, as you said, eating food from the first day you're born. What's something that our listeners can do to help our food system improve? Sure. Uh, From my perspective, you should patronize small restaurants where you can know the owners or the managers that have been around a few years. Don't run off to the newest place, right? A lot of times that's just chasing the hype. Um, And the old places need your help. And a lot of them are treating their people better if they've been around for three years or four years. Um, And a lot of them could use your money. And a lot of them probably have really great relationships with their farms and um, their purveyors. And I think think like anything else in life, you, you support the... Well, at least in this industry, if you support a little bit of the establishment, especially the small establishment, you're creating a sense of stability that's really important for us to be able to move forward. Um, you know, if you're if you're advocating for more local sourcing, but the only kind of restaurants we have are brand new ones that have been around for nine months, yep. you're never going to get somebody who can build that relationship yep. where where those farms can trust somebody um, to buy from them fairly. Right, and plan their plan their growing season accordingly. Exactly. I really appreciate that one, Matt. I've not heard that specific um, recommendation to look for restaurants between three, four years, you know, somewhere in there that, that are clearly working but need to then sustain the next five years. Exactly. So um, that's a great one. Thank you. And sure. thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. There's, there are other questions that I would have loved to ask. Sorry but, I talk too much. Um, people, <laughs> no, people can, can learn more about the work you do for your clients by visiting um, culinary accountants on Instagram at CPA Eats, yep. right? At CPA Eats. At CPA and Eats. Twitter is the same thing. I, same I on Twitter. <laughs> and um, I hope that l- the listeners tune in to next week's second episode in our food admin series where we're going to talk to two women who have done incredible work as food administrative assistants um, and have really interesting perspectives to share. So thanks for joining us. This is Kiko on Lunch Agenda and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.